0: This time around, I was lucky enough to welcome back to the show the legend that is Doug Lamov. And I tell you what, it is an absolute cracker. But just before we get to that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. (laughs) Music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast is proudly supported by Arc Maths and that's Arc with a C not a K. So what is Arc Maths? Well the Arc Maths app is like 10 quick questions or an essential skills starter but as if you were a teacher with infinite time on your hands I wish. ArcMath tracks how students have answered previous questions and then chooses 12 lovely questions that are appropriate to the needs of each individual student. It sets the questions, marks the questions and then records their answers and, and this is the best bit I reckon, generates additional questions for anything that's incorrect to be practised at the end with support from a teacher or classmate. If a student forgets something, then it automatically reappears the next day, a week later, a month later and three months later until it's remembered. So why use ArcMaths? Well, it's been designed to help pupils remember what you've taught them, so what has been learnt stays learnt. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can focus your time on teaching new topics. There is zero teaching element to it whatsoever. It's simply designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. Why does ArcMaths work? Well, it's the big three, of course, we've got good old retrieval practice, which we know is important for long term retention, a lovely bit of spacing effect. So any forgotten topics move into an intervention loop of space practice. And then the best of all, we've got a good old dose of interleaving. The practice is mixed up so students can focus on method selection. I can testify to this, the ArcMath app is super easy to use, there's no setup required, pupils can just crack on with it. They can draw on the screen to enter answers, there's lovely handwriting recognition, not just for numbers but for algebraic expressions, square roots, indices and fractions. It's dead straightforward and really intuitive, far better than using a keyboard for maths. And you can even annotate the pictures and write working out on screen. It keeps the whole task moving. Sessions on ArcMath tend to take around about 10 minutes. So what's next? Well, ArcMath's app has just been shortlisted for the Educational App of the Year 2021 at BET and Get this, teachers can have a go with ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. Just drop an email to hello at arceducation.co.uk. There'll be a link to that email address in the show notes or contact them via their website at arceducation.co.uk. And just remember, that's ARC with a C and not a K. Ever, if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at MrBartonMaths at gmail.com to find out a bit more about the sponsor packages available. But. <coughs> As ever, if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the sponsor packages available. And there's a link to that in the show notes. But... Back to today's episode with Doug Lamov. Now, Doug is probably best known as the author of Teach Like a Champion 2.0, a book which has had a huge influence on the last several years of my teaching and thinking, and which I genuinely believe is an absolute must for all teachers to read, jam-packed as it is with loads of practical, easy-to-implement strategies that can truly be transformative. Doug has also authored and co-authored loads of books, and we're going to discuss two of them in this episode, The Coach's Guide to Teaching and Teaching in Online Classrooms, and he's also set to release Teach Like a Champion 3.0 later this year, and we discuss some of that as well. And the other thing I just wanted to mention is that Doug and his team's CPD sessions are regarded as some of the very best in the whole wide world, so if you're ever lucky enough to have an opportunity to go on them, either in person or virtually, I'd wholeheartedly recommend it. Anyway, Doug's first appearance on the show back in 2017 was an absolute highlight for me. It was around about the time I was writing How I Wish i Taught Maths, and it was speaking to legends such as Doug, the Bjorks, Dylan William, Daisy Christadulu, that really helped shape my thinking, and I will be forever grateful. Now, the original plan was to have Doug back on the show so he could share his insights from his Teaching in Online Classrooms book. But with the announcement of a return to the classroom for students in English schools, we decided upon a shift in focus. So instead, Doug picks out key takeaways from three books. The Coach's Guide to Teaching, Teaching in Online Classrooms and Teach Like a Champion 3.0. That he believes are of direct relevance to teachers returning to classrooms in the coming weeks. And I tell you what, Doug has some absolute solid gold to share, including... What profound thing about relationships and classroom culture can we learn from sports, and how can we help to develop it in our classrooms? What are some of the positives that teachers can take away from the remote teaching experience back into the classroom? Then things get a little bit awkward as I start to slag off exit tickets, but fortunately Doug saves the day with a wonderful suggestion of how to use technology for delayed exit tickets. I then clear up a misunderstanding that I had about the strategy Doug calls, cold call, and I realise it's even more powerful a strategy than I've been thinking for the last few years. Finally, Doug shares some of his favourite strategies from the upcoming Teach Like a Champion 3.0, including a shift away from lesson planning to lesson preparation. Now, this episode is directly relevant to now, March 2021, when it's being recorded with the impending return to classrooms. But it's also an episode that I know I will return to many times in the future, packed as it is with golden nuggets. Before we crack on, just a reminder that I've got a whole host of online CPD opportunities available, both free and premium, covering a wide range of areas. We're talking focusing thinking, intelligent practice, problem solving, worked examples, formative assessment, you name it. They're all there at craigbarton.podia, P-O-D-I-A. Com. and there's a link to that in the show notes as well anyway enough of me rambling on let me introduce to you Doug Lamov I really hope you enjoy this one I know you will and as ever I will see you on the other side so it gives me great pleasure to welcome back one of the podcast favorites one of our most popular ever episodes uh, Mr Doug Lamov so welcome Doug
1: Well, it's good to see you, Craig. Nice to be back. Hope everything's going well.
0: Fantastic. Yes. Now, I was looking back, Doug, November 2017, you were last on the show. So we're talking three and a bit years ago. So what I'm interested in first, before we dive into all the teaching and pedagogy, is just how how have the last 12 months been for you? Is is there anything kind of gone well that you enjoyed about these weird 12 Mm -hmm. months and, and what have you struggled with?
1: Uh, yeah, those are tough. (laughs) Those are great. Those are great questions. I do. I mean, I try to be the kind of person who sees the silver lining when possible. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm aware that it's been a, it's been a terrible 12 months for society and and a really terrible 12 months for a lot of people. Uh, but you know, for, I, yes, there've been some good things, you know, it's, uh, my, I've seen more of my family than I would (laughs) have otherwise. They might not, they might not be (laughs) quite as enamored of the ideas as I am, but, um, you know, there's a, my life has been radically resimplified. There's a lot less travel. There's a lot more time spent on the living room floor, uh, you know, with one of my daughters or playing. Uh, you know, my son was unexpectedly home from university, and it meant that we got to throw the rugby ball around uh, for a nice. study break. You know, in the middle of the workday, for when the weather was good. So there, there have been some some silver linings. You know, it's been it's to the question of what's been hard. I mean, so many things have been hard. Um, but maybe just sort of from from an education standpoint, you know, uh, I'm an off-the-charts introvert. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I find it ironic that I miss classrooms so much. And maybe classrooms writ large in the broadest sense of, you know, I, I just think that learning is most profound when you're in a room with other people and there's something inherently social about it. And so whether it's Uh, all of us being in classrooms or walking into classrooms, you know, standing in the back and understanding teaching or being in the classroom of sitting with a group of other educators and talking about video that we just watched or talking about a class we just watched. I, um, I miss that a lot. You know, I miss, I miss the connection and I miss the learning that comes from it. So I hope that we're hope we're coming out of the tunnel now and uh, and, and we'll be back soon and hopefully will cause us to value the classroom even more maybe than, you know, I think there are things you take for granted. Uh, And so maybe, maybe that will be one small silver lining from this terrible time.
0: Yeah it's, it's interesting so we're recording this on on the 5th of March this is the weekend before schools go back to the classroom in, in England and I think that echoes a lot of the feelings of of teachers certainly that I've spoke to and, and my colleagues there's that desire just to get back in amongst the kids and, and do what yeah. teaching's about like no, nobody signed up for doing this this online stuff and as we're going to talk about there's been some positives f- from it and some things we can take away but it doesn't feel like proper teaching does it it doesn't feel like Mixing in with the kids, gauging their right. reaction—it's just, yeah. There's a big, big chunk of it missing. Isn't it,
1: right? The humanity of it all.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's a Nice way of putting it. Well, and um, before before we start diving into into some of the the kind of takeaways that we can get, I always ask my guest Doug for a favorite failure. Now, I ask again. I asked you for one of these back God, three years ago now, mm-hmm. but I wonder over the course of the last three years or so, is is there any moment that springs to mind from your kind of professional life? It didn't go according to plan and something you've learned from the experience.
1: Yeah. Um, almost exactly a year ago today, March, March on March 13th, 2020. Uh, this is so I guess you would say this is the last day before lockdown here. I came back from a trip. i had been visiting schools in Denver, uh, you know, which is, you know, three or four hour flight from here. And, you know, on the on the way back from this flight, you know, I was supposed to go on to another city and that trip got canceled and everything got canceled and the world was kind of shutting down. And, you know, uh, at this point, you know, we didn't know what that meant or how long. Uh, And, you know, we thought, oh, it might go two or two or even three weeks. We might be (laughs) might be shut down. And then we thought, (laughs) you know, and then after a while we thought, you know, is it possible that this thing could go on to the end of the school year until June? Um, yeah. and so, you know, coming back from that trip from Denver, you know, we had like a slate of workshops that we were supposed to be doing, you know, and just, and, and a ton of school visits that we were supposed to be doing as a team through the spring, which is, you know, it's how we try to change teaching and work with teachers and learn and, um, and, and do work that we think is important. And, I, you know, so I came back to the office and, and, my, uh, office manager said, you know, should we have a workshop scheduled in Nashville in May and should we cancel it? And I said, and I I just want to be clear when I tell the story that I do not think this now, but at the moment I said, Oh, don't be, don't be silly. This is all alarmist. It's going to last a week and we'll all see how silly it was. It's all all going to be overblown and we have work to do and children need better classrooms and that's more important. So like keep the workshops open and you know, I, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to get on the plane. I'm going to be the last person still out there. And I'm going to be, you know, basically like I'm going to be a soldier. And um, obviously I could not have been more wrong <laughs> about that, <laughs> about that call, you know, at so many different levels, uh, you know, and, so, and yes, we ended up canceling all of our workshops. But I think about that moment a lot because um, I could have put people that I love, you know, my family implicitly and my colleagues at risk. You know, I know why I did it. I did it because I believe very strongly in the work that, that I'm lucky enough to do. And You know, I feel that now, like the fact that children in this country have not been in school for a year—is it justified? No. Like, do we have incredible amounts of work to do to do right by those those young people? Yes. But in the face of adversity, it's so easy to put a heroic cloak on and to build a sort of righteous Mm -hmm. narrative. And I think that I was, you know, in the process of doing that. And um, you know, I think it's it's a mistake to believe that the ardency of your beliefs insulates you from cognitive errors about them like confirmation bias you know uh the opposite in Mm -hmm. fact the more you believe in something the more likely you are to have blind spots about it and to not see the unintended consequences of the policy you believe in so strongly so this is kind of like a, a case study in it for me and i just i think that's a very important thing right now you know like the the it's probably a longer answer than you want to go, but like the world is full of people. No, right I like now. it. I like it. Yeah. I think the world is full of people right now, confusing the ardency of their intentions with the degree of polarity of ideas and beliefs that will accomplish those things. So it's a world of people kind of doing that. Like it's very easy to, um, uh, an ardent belief does not imply a radical tactic is the most effective way to accomplish it. But I think people confuse that sometimes. So I look at like, you know the absurdities promulgated under the guise of equity in this country. You know that, like, we all, I hope, abhor racism and want an equitable society that uh, has opportunity for everyone. Um, but you know, like, there was a there are people. There's there's a sort of document sent to teachers in the state of Oregon here that said, you know, asking students to show their work when they're doing maths is a form of white supremacy. I just like oh no that is um because I find I mean the, like to me that's racism like perpetuated as if it was anti-racism so like if, if I find because I find something abhorrent racism in this case does not imply that I should take the most radical position possible on it often mm-hmm. um, you know uh, uh, it's it's easy you can be it's easy to mistake the passion of your beliefs for the um, radicalness of your positions right? that, you know, you can be an ardent believer yes. and a, rentless, a relentless implementer of sensible and non-radical ideas. And oftentimes that's the best way to achieve social outcome. And so like, I, I just, um, and maybe that's like a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a bird walk. Um, but you know just having believed earnestly in something and almost made this sort of terrible mistake of going way too far trying to go way too far but being caused not to by lucky circumstances I just reminded that you can believe earnestly and passionately um, in something and and that doesn't insulate you from having blind spots about it
0: absolutely it's a very profound answer that Doug and yeah it's it's one of those things that that it really it's really bubbled up just from following social media over Mm -hmm. over the last 12 months and i'm sure covid and the pandemic is has been the the instigator of this but people's beliefs in everything just seems to have got a whole lot stronger and people seem to be myself included Mm -hmm. less inclined to see the other side of things and and to take those views to an extreme and it's it's a side effect that I didn't see coming, but yeah, it, it does seem to be bubbling up all over the place, and it's it's, it's hard to avoid, it, not it? Sometimes, though, as you say, when you believe in something so strongly and you're doing it for the right reasons, it's yeah, it's hard to rein it back in sometimes.
1: Yeah, doing it for the right reasons doesn't exonerate you from the reality yes. of unintended consequences, right? And yes. that's uh, that is so profound in a lot of things that are ha- you know a lot of the things that are going to be done and they're going to be done in the interest of quote equity. Yes. in this country and in your country are going to be massively destructive to the people that they claim to hurt. They will have the effect of making the people who argue for them feel exonerated from complicity in structural racism, but they will only perpetuate the racism and the, and the, uh-huh. uh, and the inequality of opportunity. And I, f- I find that so profoundly tragic. And just to like, I hope to give away the, the last answer to the, the podcast, which is um, recommended books. I'll just say that one of the three books that I've read This year that I find so profound is uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, which is just about Mm. our proclivity, our almost like biological um, evolution to be prone to righteousness and self-righteousness and our own ideas and the blindness that comes with that.
0: Fantastic. Sup- superb answer that, Doug. One of the best we've had for favorite failure, that very, very profound, fantastic stuff. Well, the, lead, I'm game. at the
1: top of the league tables in failure, <laughs> so I should be able
0: to reflect on that. <laughs> fantastic. Right, well, the way we're going to structure this is we're going to, we, we often on the podcast, we'll talk about one book or one research paper. We're going to go for a three-for-one deal here. So you've got you three books that I want to talk about that have, have come out or are coming out since we last chatted. So we're going to okay. start with, for me, the one that surprised me the most when I saw that you were releasing this and The Coach's Guide to Teaching. So just give yeah. us a bit of background on that one, Doug.
1: Well, I've always dreamed of being the manager of Preston North End. So <laughs> I figured this was the <laughs> best. This is the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is, this is a, it's a, I, I acknowledge it's a funny book. And I felt like when, I, when it came out, first of all, you know, it's like, it's a five-year journey to write this book. And when it came out, I had to felt like I had to tell many of the people in education who read my other books, like this is a book for coaches, Mm. but you know, it's a, it's a book for sport coaches about coaching sports. Um, and the backstory on this is that, um, I, there's a small sideline that I have, which is, you know, I probably spend 10 or 20 days a year working with sports federations and professional sports branches, helping them think about teaching better and learning better. And I'm, I'm deeply humbled by this. And the the truth is that when I first started doing this, um, I kept it a secret from people in my office because I was embarrassed. Like, not embarrassed. I mean, I, I love the work. It's fascinating. And I learned so much. But, you know, uh, to me, the failure of schools to meet the needs of young people is like it's, it's the most important issue in our generation. And so, like, I would go work with the U.S. Soccer Federation or – um, you know, I took a trip to New Zealand to work with New Zealand rugby and, uh, you know, I'd come back and I would sort of wow. like mildly dissemble where I, where I was. Cause I was like, Oh, you know, <laughs> here with my team, we do, you know, we're working on this like morally imperative social issue and I'm off, you know, like, um, doing something that felt relatively glamorous, but, um, the fascinating thing was that this <laughs> book would not. So I, I started writing this book because so many fascinating learning questions came up in the course of, uh, this work and, Um, and so I started to read a lot of cognitive science to try and answer those questions because I was really struck by, um, how often it was a little bit like education. People would like answer the questions of how people learn based on these like shibboleths that people believe that had no scientific basis. And to be able to try to answer their Mm. questions responsibly, you know, I knew I, I wasn't the expert in the room. So I just tried to read as much cognitive science as I can and tried to work myself towards answers. And as I developed these answers towards coaching questions, like how do you teach people to make decisions better and how do you teach them to, you know, it turns out that perception is is fundamentally underrated in its role in in decision-making. This book would not stay in its lane, which is I would come back to the office and suddenly like I'd be talking about the session that I did for, you know, the U S soccer federation or for um, Scotland rugby, because the things I'd learned there were so relevant to teaching in classrooms and developing people Uh, And so, um, yes, it's a book about sports coaching, um, but it's also like, I I do think there are a lot of like um, applications to developing people in in schools and and maybe, you know, one of them in particular is just the role of perception. You know, the the first chapter in the book is about the idea that a game like a, a, a game like football, what you call football, what we call soccer. Is a decision-making game. You have to socialize people to make decisions on the spur rapidly over and over again, often very quickly in very complex circumstances. That is a lot like teaching. How do you do that? Um, well, you can't make the right decision if you're not looking at the right things, right? And so lots of times in a football setting, we would, we, a coach might be angry at a player because the player made a bad decision. And the problem was not that the player saw the correct options and failed to choose them. It's that the player never recognized mm. the cues that said, yes, um, you know, the winger is open or, you know, or you are playing the ball into pressure or in a teaching setting, never realized the cues that like, do you notice that the students are getting frustrated right now that like their body language is saying that they are annoyed, you know, or do you notice that, uh, you know, whatever, you know, that perception is the first step to decision-making and, um, I realized that it's, it's overlooked in a coaching setting. And I also think that it's overlooked in like, as we're, co- as we're coaching leaders to coach teachers or coaching teachers, um, instead of saying like, for, one of the things I talk about in the book is instead of saying, what should you do? A really good question is, what do you see? Right. But that, 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 that tells you whether yes. the person is attending yes. to the right cues. And like, that is actually a really, I think, applicable question in schools and classrooms as well. Uh, which is there? So, so many times when we overlook, we assume that perception is automatic, but it's not. It's not an it's not an automatic function, and so yes. the subjectivity and fallibility yes. of perception is a place to begin both with students and with like and developing adults. So that's like one of the many lessons from writing this book about coaching.
0: Just a few things on that, Doug. It fascinates me that I think in my head I've got three things swimming around that I'd like to just share with you here. So the first is that, I mean. I've spent a lot of the last three or four years just reflecting on all the horrendous mistakes I made as a teacher. And it's only in this last year or so that I've reflected on not just mistakes I made as a teacher myself, but as a as a mentor supporting less mm-hmm. experienced teachers, particularly in lesson observations. Mm-hmm. So I'd I'd be lucky enough to watch another teacher teach, and at the end of it, we'd sit down for a chat. And when I think about some of those conversations, they're absolutely terrible because all the time I'd be watching a teacher teach, I'd be thinking, oh, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done mm-hmm. something different. And, and that would always be the, the way that the, the conversation would be framed. Like, I, I, you did that. Would it have been a better idea to do this and this mm-hmm. and this? And I think just, in, I've, I've rethought of a lot of the things that I did, but I think adding that question in as when you were doing that, what did you see? I think that's mm-hmm. such a such a simple question, but such a powerful one because it's the only way for you to get into the mind of the teacher to really understand the decision-making process they made, if that makes sense.
1: It's a diagnostic question, right? So like the example I give when I talk to football coaches is like, you have a centre-back who, you know, the other team is bringing the ball through the midfield and there's no pressure on the on the midfielder with the ball, the opposition midfielder with the ball. Centre-back is supposed to drop and, and give space uh, on their mark in that situation. Let's say you have a, a your centre-back doesn't, doesn't give space there, right? You could, if you pause and you say, great, Craig, what do you see? There are kind of two options. One is he identifies the cue, which is like, there's no pressure on the ball. Mm-hmm. And then it's relatively simple. So what, so what are your options? What should you do? But just as likely he'll say, people aren't hustling, you know, people aren't working back hard or, you know, mm. we're, uh, we're um, people aren't, you know, um, we're disorganized in the midfield, which is a way of saying like, I recognize things don't look right, but I really don't know what, what tells me about, where I'm supposed to position yes. myself. And then I know that the, the teaching solution is very different because the teaching solution is Craig, The thing you need to look at most is whether there's pressure on the ball and that will tell you, right. And that gives you a replicable mm-hmm. solution to a thousand situations where the ball is coming through midfield and you have to make the decision about whether, to get, whether, to, you know, mark tight or give space. So I think that's,
0: that's, fascinating. that's the way that like
1: the question, what do you see is, is hopefully in the hands of a, of a good developer, a good coach is diagnostic. It tells you, something about the decision making process of the, of the of the person you're trying to help.
0: That's fantastic. I love that. And again, I was going to go on to say as well, Doug, just One of the things that I've always loved about your work, particularly um, Teach Like a Champion, the original and and 2.0, is it's just full of practical things. And and my listeners love practical takeaways. And that's just one, like adding that question into conversations with teachers straight away just improves that dialogue straight away. It gets gets to the heart of the issue. I I love that. And the other thing I was just going to say before I forget as well is... um, Sports are a really interesting one. Um, I've been looking enough on this podcast to interview lots of my heroes, yourself included. But um, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork were on a good few years ago now. And it's really interesting. A lot of their work in Desirable Difficulties, uh, Robert often cites sports examples. Like whenever he's talking about the power of interleaving, when he first explained it to me, he was talking about tennis and he was yeah. all, he was saying like a real bad way to learn tennis is just to kind of keep Locked focusing practice. on bouncing yeah. the ball and then keep focusing on. So you, you put it all together and, th- and then it's kind of then let's relate that then to teaching. And it always fascinates me how, so I think music's similar as well. We, we always kind of go to a sports and a music analogy mm-hmm. whenever we're trying to sometimes explain something from the cognitive science literature with regard to education, if that makes sense. Do, do you find that, that often they lend themselves quite well to, to, to understanding a complex educational issue?
1: Yeah, they really, they really, there's just laboratories for human development. One, because so many people have experienced them, but two, because, I mean, this is one of the other fascinating things about writing this book is... Um, you can almost see it better when it's outside your field of specialty. The book, the, the coaching book starts with this sort of anecdote that I tell in the introduction of um, I got invited to this licensing course for coaches of like uh, of our elite football, our elite soccer league in this country, football league. So they're the coaches yeah. of the professional team who like they're getting a pro license and I got invited to come and like do a workshop for them on teaching. And I was like, okay, I'm obviously, the obvious thing to do is to show them video of, of a math teacher, which is what I plan to do. And then, so then they introduced me and I'm right. As they finished introducing me, I'm like, what was I thinking? I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to show video of a 10th grade math teacher to soccer coaches. And they're going to infer things that are relevant to them, you know, and coaching, you know, in coaching in their setting, but it was like, it was too late to fix it. Right. I had, I was walking to the front of the room and so there was nothing to do but press play (laughs) in the video. And it was such a profound experience because, um, you know, I sort of was expecting crickets and instantly they had these insights about what this math teacher was doing that were like, Mm. they were, it, it was it was almost easier for them to see the teaching elements because it wasn't, didn't involve soccer. So first of all, the insights were profound. Second of all, they were profound for teach. Like I wanted like a thousand teachers to be in the room hearing what they said. Cause they were like, teachers need yes. to hear this. But also I had a, another experience where, where I went to a workshop. I showed people this video of a soccer coach who was giving in my mind, beautiful feedback to his players. And I wanted the coaches to understand the principles of the way he was giving feedback. And I stopped the videotape and there was almost a riot in the room because He was doing a drill and he was doing an exercise in which he was teaching overlapping, teaching his outside backs to make overlapping runs in the back half of the field. And the room was in outrage because everyone knew that you were supposed to do this exercise in the front half of the field and that it was inexcusable. And so I said, okay, point taken. If you do this exercise, do it in the front half of the field. What did you think of his feedback? And honestly, for 20 minutes, I could not get anyone to focus on the feedback because they were so... Yes. They felt such personal vestedness in the content. They couldn't see past the content. And I do think there's a degree to which when you look at learning issues in a slightly different setting, it sets you free to be able to see the fundamentals sometimes. Um, and so like talking about sports and music analogies sets us free of the like, yeah, but I didn't like the lesson. <laughs> I didn't, I, was, you know, the philosophy behind the reading instruction is like, uh, I, I don't agree with that. You know, um, all that stuff is sort of gone and you can just see that you, you can see suddenly the forest through the trees. So I think that that both happened for the sports coaches, but I also think it happens for us when we glance, uh, learning in a, in a in a in other settings.
0: Do you think that extends to teachers observing teachers who teach different subjects to them? And the, the reason I ask yes. is, I often, I, I I whenever I'm lucky enough to watch a teacher who doesn't teach math, I always go in there saying, "Look, I have no insight whatsoever about." you're delivering the material like the the subtleties of what you're what you're teaching all i can look at is the big picture the formative assessment strategies and so on and i hope often those observations well i certainly often enjoy them more because i can leave a lot of my baggage at the door about how i would be teaching something did you find it transfers that way that, that that often you can give better advice to to subjects out of your expertise
1: yeah i mean the only word i might i might play with there a little bit is different advice because i think there, there is a time to watch subject area expertise but there are mm. also different things can you learn something from watching someone outside your subject area or by the way someone outside your grade level i'm always yes. struck by how skeptical <laughs> um teachers of you know students in year nine or 10 yeah. might be when yes. you show them, you know, you're, you're two or three, but if you say Absolutely. like, okay, I know you don't teach, if you acknowledge, I know you don't teach this grade, but what can you learn from this? Or vice versa, or like having, you know, year two and three teachers. What? Well, um, I think people always surprise themselves by like, actually, um, there are things here for me. And so I think it's both important to watch video in your, you know, as close to what you do in your, in your subject area and at your age, the age level we teach, but also, to sample video widely uh, and to sort of triangulate back to wisdom by seeing things that are unexpected and surprising. And um, so I guess, you know, maybe that's an argument for a diverse diverse portfolio, portfolio of observational experiences.
0: Definitely, and I always say that I I sometimes learn the most when I'm lucky enough to visit our prime feeder primary schools, and it's something I didn't do for about five or six years because I thought, what well, What's the point? They teach kids I'll never teach that age. But yeah. as you say, you can you can learn so much. Um, was there anything else from from the book, the coach's guide to teaching, that you wanted to talk about in terms of uh, takeaways that are relevant to, to classroom teachers? Though, yeah, I mean,
1: I could I could go on and on. Um, <laughs> honestly, uh, so I don't want to I don't want to bore you and bore your readers. Not at uh, all. Maybe I'll just I'll, I'll just. I'll just finish the story about the coach showing the math video to the coaches. Yeah, cause, yeah, yeah. Cause one of the most interesting things was, so I show this video and, um, the first, the first coach is like one of the most preeminent coaches in our country. And he says he's coaching everybody. I was like, Oh, um, I thought he's just being polite. I said, say more about that. And he said, well, he's walking around the classroom and he's giving feedback to every student about their progress. And that lets them know that they're important to the institution. And that they're um, important to the endeavor, and he, you know, like his first observation was like, and sometimes like we have guys on our club who like we don't talk to them for days at a time, and I'm just sitting here thinking about like how must that look from their perspective, and how do they feel important? And so we got into this conversation about relationships, and then another coach said, you know, people misunderstand relationships. He said at this level, guys like this, they want to play and they want to be great and they want to succeed, and you cannot build a relationship with an athlete by just high-fiving them in the, you know, when you see them in the hallway and telling them that you care about them and like being friendly, like you have to be able to make them better. And you have to show that you Mm. can, you can make them better if you want them to, to trust you. And if you want to have a profound relationship with them, this, by the way, is probably the single most successful American soccer coach. And he, and so his point was that his point, there were two points that he was making that I think are commonly misunderstood by teachers One is that like, are relationships critical to learning for students? Absolutely. But many teachers then believe that they have to have the relationship before they start teaching. And his point is like, there is no way to build a relationship without teaching someone successfully. In the end, that teaching is the tool that we use to show that we Mm. believe in someone and care about them and that they are seen to us and that their progress is important. And so this sort of notion that like, you hear this phrase all the time, like they don't care what you say until they know that you care. Well, like, knowing that you're teaching them well and, and, you, and them seeing you teach them well is how they know that you care. So, um, so start teaching. <laughs> and, and then you, you the, the relationship building is an, <laughs> it, is an iterative process, right? It, uh, you build trust over time yes. by being successful at making someone able to do things. And that's how they come to believe in you. Um, and I think that was really profound. And then he made this sort of second point about the fact that um, people have relationships with the group. We're really aware of that on teams um, and it's also important in the classroom, you know, I think one of the, I was just making this point in teach like a champion 3.0, which is you have a student, you call, she has for the first time, like this thought about the example I use in the book is it's a biology classroom. She has a thought about recombinant DNA for the first time and she's never raised her hand and she raises her hand. And she shares this idea, and she's like, you know, terrified. Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Like, is it okay to speak? Am I that kid? Am I, am I talking too much? Will people mock? You know, how will people respond to me raising my hand in this environment and saying this very heartfelt thing about science? Does it matter how the teacher reacts to her? Absolutely. If the teacher says, oh, that's so interesting. Thank you. I appreciate that. Does that matter? Of course. But it matters a lot less than how her classmates react. And if they are looking at her, you know, and like nodding um, or if the next person who talks uh, refers to the comment that she made versus she makes a comment and kids are slouched in their chairs and looking out the window Mm -hmm. and their body language says, I don't give a damn about what you just said. And the next person, there is no next comment or the next person who comments says something that is entirely unrelated to what she said. The social norms of the classroom, the social cues are far more, I mean, do teacher relationships matter? Yes, but the social climate matters a lot more. And so really, if we want classrooms to be inclusive, we have to have the humility to realize that it removes us a little bit from the center of the conversation. Yes, teacher relationships are important, but the norm, the social norms we build among students and whether we build a culture that pushes students to engage in pro-social behaviors like looking at each other and looking like you care when someone your classmate is talking and, and looking at them and making sure that your comment refers to and gives honor to the person who went before those things are far more important in developing students sense of identity and inclusion in the classroom and we overlook them sometimes because the narrative about teacher relationships which is real teacher relationships are real they um they're about us. So we give them, so they seem really important and they are important, yes. but they're not as important. Yeah, they're not yeah. as important as the peer to peer culture in the classroom. And I realized that from hearing this coach talk about how profoundly it was important it was for the, for players to be part of a team and that their identity came from being as much from their connections with the other players as with the coach themselves. And if they're like the guy, you know, he's not, he, he love if the, if he loves and feels supported by his teammates, he will be vested in the team and he will work hard on the field
0: it's fascinating absolutely fascinating Doug and you're right a lot of the emphasis is always on the the teacher side of things because that's what we're in control of and I guess my question is and it's a really obvious one forgive me for this but like how do we get that culture in the classroom where our classmates are respectful of each other and engaged in each other is that a yeah. case of modeling it do it reward when we see it what are what some yeah. of techniques you've seen that work
1: I've been kind of obsessing on the word norm cause I think a norm is a combination of two things. It's a procedure. So, uh, and those are usually like explicitly taught, right? So the way to get a classroom where teach like a champion 3.0 will be full of videos of classrooms where when a student talks, his or her classmates look at her and look interested and nod and engage. Right. I just think that's so fundamental. Mm -hmm. Um, when we talk about Teach Like a Champion 3.0, I'll talk like I, th- I think the, one of the biggest themes is research, and that I've really been I've really tried to tie the te- techniques much more explicitly to research, and a lot of it is like research into cognitive science, but a lot of it is also research into social science. Mm-hmm. And one of the most fascinating pieces of research sorry, this is a little bit of a bird walk, no, but not at all. I think
0: wow, it's I like so it.
1: fascinating is this theory that scientists that that evolutionary biologists have to explain um, why we have whites of our eyes. We're the only primate that has whites of our eyes. And wow. so, and so you, like, why do, why does every other primate have dark, have dark sclera surrounding their pupils? And the reason that the, so there's this idea called the cooperative eye hypothesis that evolutionary biologists <laughs> <evaluators laughs> have come up with. And the idea <laughs> is that we, we think of evolutionary evolution as an individual function, but we survived in groups. And the people who survived evolution survived because they coordinate together. And they're always like competing within the group and competing through the group. And so you have to be able to both coordinate and understand whether you are accepted in the group and also like understand your position within the group. And so you're constantly scouting and looking at other members of the group to see how to understand your position because we're such social yes. beings. We're so deeply social It's wired into our physiology. And so the reason that we have whites of our eyes is so that we can see what people are looking at more clearly and understand the emotions and ideas implicit in their gaze. And so that's just like a piece of research, a a clue to me about how profoundly and social important gaze is in the classroom. Like, of course Mm -hmm. students are attentive to the fact as to whether like people are scoffing at them with their eyes or their eyes, don't even register them. They they don't feel quote seen literally and metaphorically or whether um, people's eyes are looking at them as if they care. And so like, I would say that a norm starts with a procedure, which is I ask students when someone else, when when one of your classmates is speaking, like I'm going to ask you to track them and they should probably understand why, right? It's because we want to honor each other and we want to, we want to feel support. And Mm so people will say, more useful things for your learning if you let them know that they're safe here and that you, that you support them and that that you care about what they're saying. So that's the, that's the the sort of procedure, but then the norm is students Mm -hmm. have to see that everyone is doing it and you have to make it visible that everyone is doing it because then when you see that other people are doing it, then it becomes, then you're influenced by it and become, it becomes culture. And so, you know, it's this, I mean, when I think about the things that, um, people who hate me <laughs> just hate teach like a champion say about teach like a champion like the, yeah. one of the biggest flashpoints is tracking um mm. and i think in part it's on me because i don't i think you know i i did not dis, i did not explain it fully enough in teach like a champion 2.0 so i like so i don't have any i don't have a lot of time for you know people who have like disingenuous interpretations of it but i would also say there are a lot of like people who want to do the right thing and believe in kids who deserve to understand this sort of like thinking behind it and why gaze is so important in the classroom and so a big part of 3.0 is describing the why behind techniques so you like i, I think you do tra- like actually change the name of tracking or slant which is what it's called in 2.0 to the, to the its new name is habits of attention because the idea is that like teaching students to look at the person who's talking helps them to pay attention attention is the most important thing in learning cognitive science tells us and two it builds these sort of pro social cues that make learning safe and make a, and and you know there is no neutral design in social environments right we're we're socializing students to do things that foster their education and so i just believe that like if you understand those things about the technique you will be more confident in using it and more likely to be correct in using it and not, you know, give rise to like a lethal mutation where you obsess on it at the wrong moments and not at the right moments. The key. So 3.0 is a lot about like the why behind a lot of the the core things. Um, Because I, um, you know, there are people who will tell you that that is like trying to control black or trying to control children. and, And if it's minority children, black and Brown bodies, you know, like the, uh, and I feel like this is a classic case of like, um, I guess some people truly believe that. I think some people say that disingenuously, but it's the most profound thing that you can do to build an environment where students get the right that they deserve to be in, a, in an academic climate that pushes them to be the very best that they can possibly be. And so the, and the people who want that for kids deserve to understand the science and the, ra- and the rationale behind why it's so, why it's so profoundly important.
0: Wow, there's there's two, well, loads of things I could say to that. Just, just two spring to mind immediately, Doug. The, the first is, again, reflecting on my errors in the past. Um, whenever I've come up with a new idea, so I talk a lot in my books about using silent teaching or intelligent practice and all these things. I've not told the kids why we're doing it. All of a sudden, I'm yeah. launching this new idea on them. They don't have a flipping clue what I'm going on about. It's, yeah. it's completely out of their comfort zone. And now I'm really, really—I make a conscious effort before we do anything new to explain why. And for some students, if they're um, particularly young, young students, I'll have to find different analogies. And often I'll, I'll lean to music or, or sport, as we talked about before. And for older students, I'll, I'll share the cognitive science behind it. I'll talk about working memory capacity, cognitive load, and so on. But I find that. It's so obvious now when you say it out loud, but without that justification of why, you, you, you're playing catch-up immediately. You're fighting a losing battle because you, you don't have the kids on board. And yeah. often there's, sometimes there's quite a, a time lag be, between introducing something and them seeing the benefits. So to, to kind of shorten that from when they see the benefits, at least if you can sell them on the dream of why you're doing it, you've got a bit, bit of a better chance, if
1: that makes sense. One of my favorite schools in the UK is uh, a school called Turkey Academy, uh, uh, down on the South coast. And they're, they're so wise about their implementation of teach like a champion techniques. Cause one of the things they develop little icons that they often put on student materials that are about like, that tell students which techniques they're going to be using and why. So like, they'll like have an icon for wait time, which is like, I want you to think deeply about this question. Yes. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds of, and then I'm going to cold call because I want everyone, because I want to make sure that like I hear a diversity of opinions on this and that, um, uh, and that I'm able to sample, you know, a wide variety of opinions, and so I do think that that's. Um, now I want to go back to the manuscript, and that, but I think the idea, of, <laughs> the idea of like letting students in on on why, what you're doing and why is is um, is powerful. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And the, the second thing I was going to make, and this is the most obvious point you've ever heard in your life, but this is one of the the biggest things that's been lost with with remote teaching. Of course, is this. I mean, teachers talk about the 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 lack of re- or the difficulty of getting the relationships with the students when you're doing a Zoom call or a Teams call or whatever. But I think the thing that gets missed a lot is is the relationships between the students themselves because yeah. that's almost impossible to replicate or at least even get close to in terms of terms of online. And but the, but what I was going to say is that that's almost as long as we're aware of that when 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 students do return to school in this case on Monday or whenever it is for teachers around the world listening to this. That's we can almost make that a positive, right? If if the focus yeah. becomes on let's reestablish this, let's get those relationships, let's let's reestablish a way because the kids are crying out for it as well. So yes. I think we can turn that into a positive if that makes sense.
1: I absolutely think that's right. Which is the silver lining of all this is that we will hopefully come to recognize um, the most powerful things that we've taken for granted, which are, which are you know yes. like just the inherent connectedness of being in a classroom together and how, and how we build that and and how important it is. Uh, and that I think, you know, students feel the isolation for sure. Um, and so, uh, we have the opportunity when we go back to be more intentional about building the kinds of cultures that, um, that students deserve absolutely absolutely
0: well are we all right now Doug to move on to um, your second book if that's okay the, the teaching in online classrooms if that's yeah okay. sure yeah now the first thing that this is some pace you had on this Doug right because we're in lockdown and I'm thinking we, we teachers need a bit of guidance on this I look on Amazon straight away teaching in online classrooms is fired up so how did you t- how did you and your team turn it around so quickly What what was the process there
1: well, I think I was telling you the story of, you know, on March 13th, I got back from this trip to Denver yeah. and we were like, okay, we're in lockdown. And we just realized suddenly that, um, that teachers were going to have an immense need for guidance yes. and that yes. they're that teachers have been asked to do something they had not asked for, but that was really, really hard with almost no planning. And that one, they would need models and examples and that, um, that if I think my team, and I'm really talking about my team here more, more than myself, but if I think my team has an expertise, I think it's that they, we are good at learning about teaching, partly to go back to the, what I was talking about, just the power of perception in, uh, in in sports coaching. I think, you know, what we do all day as a team is we sit around and we watch video three or four times a week. We get together as a team and we watch, you know, an hour of video together and we and we deeply study moments in teaching and we roll back the film and we watch them again. And it turns out there were things we didn't notice the first time around and we get better at looking. And so just what I realized that our core expertise is in, is, is, is in perception about teaching. And so on March 16th, when we, on Monday, we got back, you know, we got back to um, we, you know, we, we met virtually and we started watching teaching online. And honestly um, I wasn't sure that we would be able to, generate any ideas that we understood anything about teaching that we'd be able to offer any ideas. Um, but very, you know, like, I just remember that first day we watched a bunch of teachers and we had some interesting observations about them. And there was one teacher who's just her work just sung. And so we spent an hour talking about like, what was exceptional, what she did and why and we had a page of notes. And so I wrote a blog post about it. And the next day there was another one. And we just, we realized that, um, Uh, you know, I hope to have, um, simple and useful put on my tombstone (laughs) (laughs) that there were a lot of simple, useful ideas out there that we could generate and that, that using video to help people see it, you know, even in September was training, you know, teachers in New York city, most of them, many of those teachers have never seen a video of someone else teaching online, even Mm -hmm. though they had been teaching online for months.
0: Yes, yes. Uh,
1: and so I guess recognizing the power of, of just of video models and study. Uh, and frankly, like we were doing this not only to help other people, but like we realized that all of our workshops that we've been doing in person, we were going to have to do online. And so we were going to have to teach online also. So we were teaching online yes. at the same time as we were trying to study teaching online. Um, and so honestly, we didn't set out to write a book. We just started writing these blog posts. And then one day, like I just looked at traffic on our blog and it had like, I mean... It was double what it had ever been. And so that yes. was like, that was the demand signal. We started getting, we started doing some, like some workshops online and honestly, like they were, they were okay. And just like, people were clamoring for them. And, uh, and I realized yes. like, that is more of a demand signal than, a, than a, a signal about the quality of our supply. But we just decided to spend the spring <laughs> studying as much as we could. And then, and then honestly, like a, a publisher came and said, you know, there's, there's going to be this immense need. This was in sort of May or June. And we just realized that in the fall, there was a week where I realized that that this is when I realized that the pandemic was that school shutdowns were not going to end in June, that we were going to come back in the fall Mm -hmm. and that people were, that millions of kids were going to be in classrooms with teachers who no one had trained them and they didn't have the support. And so we spent June basically as a team, we just did like divided up different chapters and we each took different themes and we, Uh, you know, we wrote the book in two or three weeks in in June as a team, uh, you know, the 10 of us and my colleagues are incredibly, incredibly brilliant and insightful. And, uh, and so it hit, it was, you know, our goal was to get it out in September. We were a little bit late. It was out in early October, but the idea was just to meet the need, you know, the, as with anything else, you know, we've learned a lot since I wish that, you know, in some ways, like what's in the online workshops that we do now is far beyond what's in the book. Um, but the idea was just like pe- teachers are just going to be asked to do this incredibly difficult thing without any guidance or any support of like really practical visual examples and so we just we just scrambled to write this thing and that was basically my summer was getting the manuscript ready and you know revising and refining and even like you know <laughs> the very last day before it went to press I was like I'm sorry, but we have to add this new video, and we have to add like an we have to add this like additional section of my, on my publishers. were ready to kill me. Um, but you know, the need was the need was clear. So
0: it's it's really interesting. I, I, so I um, whenever um, it first became clear over in the UK that that obviously schools were closed and it wasn't going to be a two week thing, it was going to go on longer. I thought it'd be useful to do a series of interviews with with teachers about how they're finding the experience of teaching from home. So I I did like 10 10 podcast episodes, something like that. And one of the questions I asked every single teacher was, is there anything from the experience of teaching online that you're going to take back into the classroom? So bear in mind, this was kind of two or three weeks into their experience. And I think out of the 10 people I interviewed, nine of them said, no, I hate every single bit of this. This is the worst experience I've ever had. But what's been interesting is... Then, obviously, it went on longer than anybody thought, and then September came around, and we're still remote, and then Christmas comes around, and we're still teaching online, and so on. When I, when I interview teachers now or speak to them, there's lots of positives. There's lots yeah. of things that they, they like. That they're actually excited to try out on Monday or whenever it is when they go back into to schools. So I just wonder now if we're, again, switching back to the practical. What is it now from this book, Doug, that you think actually know that, that that was written for a specific need for teaching remotely, but actually that's something that could has the potential to transfer really nicely into, into the classroom. Are there any any takeaways that spring to mind?
1: I mean, I think there are a ton. Um, but I think, you know, I think the online classroom is an exaggeration and a distortion of the bricks and mortar classroom in several profound ways. One is that like, I mentioned this before. I think attention is the most overlooked factor in learning. You can't learn something unless you're paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. And the online classroom is a case study in the difficulties of attention, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, Instead of being like physically present, kids are present only in a tiny box in a corner of their laptops and they're on a screen. And once you're on a screen, you're in an environment where you're socialized to be distracted and you expect to be distracted because the device is engineered to, why are you to be addicted to distractions? And TikTok is a screen away and, uh, and Instagram is a screen away. And so being really intentional about keeping, keeping students active in their learning and constantly pausing to let them consolidate what they're learning and making sure that students see and are seen. I just think those imperatives to survive online, you have to be really attentive to those things. And, but those things are also also relevant in a slightly less emphatic way in, in the bricks and mortar classroom. Mm. And so, um, I mean, I think like, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think, uh, harvesting attention and helping students to feel seen literally and metaphorically. Right. That is, that is the struggle of online teaching my moment of, deepest unpopularity in this country is probably when um, I've had a few <laughs> I wrote I, I tweeted about just the imperative of having cameras on yes. for a lot of the reasons that we were talking about before which is like who makes a, a heartfelt comment to a room full to a, a screen full of like black screens yeah. with white names on them nobody yes yes nobody, when you can't even tell if people are listening to you, if they're rolling their like nobody does that yeah yeah and yeah. so it's like do kids want to turn their cameras on? Of course, they don't want to turn their cameras on. But as an adult, if you can get them to turn their cameras on, they will feel more connected and part of a community, and the learning yes. experience will be more valuable. And hopefully, you will then convince them. But it's you know, it's your. I think it's our obligation as adults to try to either require or socialize them to put their cameras on. Um, anyway, so I was I was around <laughs> thousands of people um, told me what an evil person I was for suggesting that cameras on were actually. <laughs> And it's fascinating because there's been some data that's come out that's shown one of the things we know about online learning is that the median level of achievement has dropped significantly, no surprise. Mm -hmm. But what's even more fascinating is that the standard deviation of achievement levels across groups of students has multiplied by an order of magnitude. In other words, Mm -hmm. while the mean has dropped, um, some kids have managed to keep up pretty well. But the disparity in learning experience the kids who've checked out, the kids who are like there but not there, they've learned almost nothing because they are the kids who are sitting there with their cameras off, barely listening, Mm. toggling around on their screens, um, who we have allowed to not be engaged in the learning process. And the results are mm-hmm. overwhelmingly clear about what the educational outcome is it hard to ask kids to turn their cameras on? Yes. Will they resist it? Yes. Is it a moral imperative? Yes. Yes, it is. I'm sorry to I'm sorry mm-hmm. to be the one to say it, but yes, it is a moral imperative. <laughs> anyway, so that's see, that's what yeah, online you asked me. Way. You asked me about the classroom. So I think like there are, are there analogies to that. Is yeah, it yeah. important that students feel seen, right? Is important do students respond to the fact that like, uh, their ideas feel important that people are looking at them. Do we have to let students know that they're, they're an important part of the classroom constantly by doing things like telling them that we care about them and encouraging them? Yes, but also sometimes by cold calling them and holding them lovingly accountable and letting them know that we see them and that they're part of the classroom and doing the hard work of, you know, like it's the moral equivalent of saying, I need your cam- your cameras on, you're, you're part of the class, you will participate um, because I because I care about you.
0: It's interesting. There's a, just a couple of reflections. One about cold call I want to come to in a second. But the, um, the thing I was thinking as well when you were saying that is, I think teaching suffered as well. And, and obviously that comes through in the data in terms of learning. Um, I know myself, when I deliver an online workshop, I hate it if the cameras are off because I can't oh, see God. any reaction. So I'm I'm trying to crack a joke and I've no idea if it's just a bad joke or if it's bombed or what, whatever. But then it's you're like the biggest
1: existential hell. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> like, it is. It is. And, who and wants to teach every day like that? I know. I know.
0: And I know. I'll tell you the biggest problem, Doug. So um, whenever I started, had my mid career crisis, and I wrote my my first book as a result of it. When I became aware of cognitive load theory, one of the biggest things I realized that I was guilty of is either the split attention effect or the redundancy effect mm-hmm. propagated by me just not shutting up. So mm-hmm. there'd be stuff for the kids to read and I'd be talking over the top or there'd be stuff for kids to read and I'd be reading it out. All these kind of classic mistakes that I now cringe about. I was mm-hmm. talking too much and I made a real conscious effort to rein back my talk so kids had time to process the information and then we'll talk over the top. But you switch to online. And it's, it's so hard, well, I find it so hard to do because you're not getting any responses. So the silence in a classroom, I find quite difficult, right? I certainly find it a bit easier now, but silence online is horrendous because you don't know whether people are there, whether they've logged off. So I just keep talking, Doug. So yeah. I'm, I'm talking, even this is
1: the irony. To I'm doing a workshop- there's, there's some sort of signal being broadcast. Exactly.
0: exactly. And the, the biggest irony is I'm doing a workshop on cognitive load theory about the redundancy effect and I'm just chatting, 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 chatting all the time and it's, I think teaching's kind of really suffered. And what's interesting, to try and flip this to the positive, I was speaking to a teacher, um, a prominent teacher in the UK, Jo Morgan, recently on the show. And she said that one benefit from her is her explanations have become a lot more concise Mm because she's realized that she doesn't want to overwhelm the kids with lots of talk. They've got distractions all around. So she's saying, she's really thinking a lot more clearly and carefully about what she needs to say, clear and concise, and she's hoping that'll kind of translate back into the classroom. Do you think that there's an element of that, that teachers have been in danger of kind of overwhelming the kids purely because of the online environment, if that makes sense at
1: all? Yeah, I mean, I think you're required to be more precise and efficient with every word. And maybe one other example. Of, I think one of the things we've also learned is that um, you can get away with giving subpar directions in a classroom. Yes. Because the kids who don't really understand the directions look around and they see what the other kids are doing, and then they follow the directions.
0: Yes. yes. When you are
1: sitting alone at your kitchen table and you don't understand a direction, you can't look left and look right and figure this. Mm. Like this is what got me through school, right? Like I was the last kid to figure it out, but I could see what the other kids were doing, and so I figured it out. And so one of the things you have to do to survive online is to give much better, better directions. You have to plan mm. them and they have to be precise, but they also have to be both visual and auditory, right? So kids can see them and hear them yes. so they can check back to them and yes. reference them. And I think that's another example of like, is that something we could take back to the classroom and recognize that our decision, our directions could be much clearer and we could give them visually and auditorily at the same time so there's a reference point that kids can look at if they don't hear it or don't process it or thinking about thinking about something else when we say it. It's a little bit, you know, like our conversation before about, about how you see new things when you watch video outside your, outside your exact domain that are still about learning. But but I think, I think there's a lot of that in teacher. It's still teaching and the fundamentals of teaching still apply. Cognitive load theory still applies. Attention still applies, but it's a different setting and that causes us to see new things about it. It's been a terrible experience. (laughs) It's been brutal for kids, but Mm -hmm. I do think that it will help us hopefully, um, to learn more about the craft of, you know, what, it, what are the fundamental experiences and interactions that are at the core of teaching? I think I absolutely yes. think you're right. And I'm glad to hear, I think Joe's example is like, I don't mean this dismissively at all, it's mundane and it's practical. And those are like two mm, of the absolutely. most powerful words, two of them are like, it, that's what makes it so <laughs> yes. beautiful. That's, yes. it's, not, it's, not, it's not, you know, like a theory, it's the pragmatics of like what we do every day um, that make it yes. be- beautiful and profound.
0: It's interesting that. The, the the other thing I was just going to mention as well, and I don't know whether you agree with this, Doug, but I'm obsessed with assessment for learning and formative assessment. And whenever schools first went into, into remote teaching, I thought that was going to be the hardest thing. And you, you, your story about the the coach alluded to this before, the fact that we couldn't wander around and give just this personal feedback to the kids, see how they're going, that that was completely removed, meant like a big... Tool of the armory of formative assessment just fell away. But the thing I think that worked particularly well online was the ability to to set mini quizzes, whether they're diagnostic mm-hmm. quizzes or whatever, and get automated marking, immediate feedback, and be able to respond. And uh, unless you're in a school where all the kids have devices, that was something you just couldn't do in the classroom. And I suddenly I, I there are these efficiencies
1: of... to data gathering that are really yes. profound. Yeah. And I just fact, I can I say like... in, in our workshop, yeah, one please. of the challenges is. Uh, there's almost too much data and you have to, um, the velocity of data that can come at you sometimes is so fast and so overwhelming. You have to be able to like actually slow it down is one of the biggest challenges I have online online learning, ironically. I'm sorry. uh,
0: Well, I'll tell you, no, no, I'll I'll tell you my favorite, Doug. Now this is a bit, this, I might as well get a bit controversial as well. Um, So one thing that's really trendy in the UK and I don't know if it's true, true in the U S is, is the notion of an exit ticket. Mm -hmm. So you you know, it's the, the end of the last five minutes of a lesson or whatever, and you come up with a question, often they're kind of cut out, put on the kid's desk. The kids answer that question. They hand it to you on the way out. It's supposed to be very quick to mark, and they give you a sense of what kids have understood in the lesson. Really simple idea. I've never been a fan because they take flipping ages. You've got to, you've got to cut the questions out, hand them out to the kids. Even if you just project it up on the board, there's still the, the notion of the kids give them to you. You've got to flick through them. I never use them as effectively as possible.
1: Yeah. But
0: what I think is really nice, what I hear teachers doing now is – Exit tickets with technology work like a dream because it's the end of the lesson. You fill out a quick multiple choice quiz or whatever. It's marked for you. And in 30 seconds as a teacher, you can look at that. And if it's a good question and a good quiz, get a good sense of their understanding. And I just wonder whether that'll be something that translates back. So you do the normal lesson in the classroom as you would do. But homework is log on to wherever, you know, click the link that you've been clicking all the time. We've been doing remote teaching, fill out this quick quiz and you get all the benefits of the exit ticket without the potential time costs and hassle in the classroom. I don't know if you've any, any thoughts on that. I
1: love that idea. I think it's brilliant. Um, and it also strikes me that it gets at the other problem with, that. I mean, I should say like exit tickets is one of the techniques and teach like a champion. Mm, so like, yes. Uh, like I've partial, you know, like partial responsibility for <laughs> the idea that you don't like, <laughs> yes. which is, like which is, but Sorry, I agree. Like, this, but this gets at the whole, like why, you know, like understanding the why better, like, uh, you know, good ideas. Uh, as Dylan Williams says, yeah. everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere or every yes. time. Like we have to be aware yes. of when it works and when it doesn't. But the, the, the other biggest gap with exit tickets is what Harry Fletcherwood calls the difference between performance and learning, and understanding that difference, which is yes. you get an exit ticket, and ninety-five percent of your kids can add fractions with unlike denominators, and you think, great, they got it. I can move on, and they don't have it yet yes. because it's not in long-term memory. And so, to, the danger they give the danger of exit tickets is the false positive because we haven't accounted for forgetting. And so, yes. Yes. Um, if I delay my exit ticket till later in the day. Or the next morning, Mm. you know, even if I delay my exit ticket an hour, suddenly I'm starting to get, I'm starting to bridge the gap between performance and to see more learning and less performance. And so I think like the tech, the the sort of technological solution that you're describing also has the potential to solve a second challenge of of exit tickets, which is I could, I could, I could, I could give a there could be a lag in the exit ticket, right? There's no reason I couldn't have students take it exactly three hours later. And then suddenly I will actually get a much better reading on what they can really do.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. Daisy Christodoulou often talks about this, that, um, the, the role of tech she sees isn't to replace teaching, but to just make these kind of retrieval opportunities a lot easier because you can schedule them in, personalize yeah. them and so on. Yeah. Delayed exit tickets with technology. That's brilliant, that dog. I like that. Um, I must ask you this one thing before I forget this. um, I listened to your interview with, with Ollie Lovell um on his, on his podcast, which I thought was absolutely fascinating interview. And I was fascinated particularly by your discussion about cold call. And this was followed up in Ollie's most recent episode with Michael Pershing, a teacher from, 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 from your neck of the woods. And what I didn't realize, and I'd missed this, Doug, about cold call, but the fact you you described how a good way to use it might be kind of wandering around the classroom, actually listening out for kids who've given really good explanations and um, perhaps kids who don't often get things right and so on. And you almost then... Deliberately pick them because you you know what they're going to say. It's almost not a check for understanding technique. Mm-hmm. It's you want to allow them to shine if that makes sense. And and Ollie in his discussion with Michael Pershing kind of renamed it as warm calling, which I thought was just a really nice idea that you're using it to to kind of bring the kids to the forefront. Is would, would I be right, Doug, that that is one of the kind of aims of cold calling, and, and I've just yeah. kind of not picked up on it?
1: I think there are actually two aims that you've described there that maybe are like are are both mixed up in your description. <laughs> One it. of them is what I would call hunting, not fishing, which is a lot of times when I call on a student, I have no idea what they're going to say. Yes. And if I walk around and look over students' shoulders and then cold call, I can actually choose to engage students based on their the relevance of their ideas and start yes. with you know a common misunderstanding or start with a brilliant answer or start with a student who has not spoken. Yes. Um, and so I can engineer the efficiency of the discussion that happens by being strategic about who I call on. Yes. But the other pieces, uh, the other, the other, so we call that hunting, not fishing. Cause I'm hunting for an answer as opposed to like fishing and hoping I get something. Got it. Got it. But the other phrase that uh, that I would say this, that applies here is what we call, what we call voice equity, which is a phrase that I've included in teach like a champion 3.0, which is, um, Part of my responsibility is to make sure it's not the same three kids talking over and over again in the yes, classroom and nothing yes. tells a student that their voice matters especially when they're not sure that they that they and their ideas are relevant like someone saying what do you think craig like that yeah, tells exactly. when, when i do that and i do it in a loving way and i do it in a supportive way um, i tell you that you matter and your voice matters in the classroom And there's just been a really fascinating bit of research that came out just this month on cold calling. And what it tells you that cold calling does not just cause students to be more engaged in learning in the classroom. It causes them to volunteer more later. They raise their hands. If you start calling calling students, it causes them to raise their hands because they know they can do it. They've seen themselves do it and they know their voice is important and they know they are part of the community. And so, um, so our phrase for this is voice equity. It's, nothing tells a student who is wondering whether they are marginal or not, that they are not marginal likes by like cold calling them and saying, tell me what you think. I'd love to know what you think right now. Right. Nice. Uh, and so part of it is just in how you, you know, there are people who would tell you that a cold call is an act of violence. I'm like, I'm a kid and it's oppressive. <laughs> and it's, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what, they, what they can come up with. For it. it is an act of love and it is an act of inclusion. <laughs> uh, and in fact, in fact, I tell the story in, in Teach like a Champion 3.0 some colleagues who, work in sub-Saharan Africa where girls will not raise their hands. You know, they're socialized yes. for whatever reasons, like often even like their, their parents are mortified by it. They want them to learn. And the way that you get them to participate is by cold calling them. And then you've exonerated them from the responsibility for breaking the social norm because you've asked them to speak yes. and then they speak and then they see that they can do it and other girls are doing it. And they like, they find that their ideas are valid when they're said out loud and then they, then they believe they can do it, and then the norm starts to crash. Fascinating, fascinating.
0: Um, yeah. Well, I want to turn to to kind of uh, our third and final section, if that's all right, Doug. I want to talk about Teach Like a Champion 3.0, if if that's okay. Now, you may not remember this, Doug, but when you were on the show last in November 2017, I'm claiming this was the world exclusive, where you broke it to the world that Teach Like a Champion 3.0 was was in the works. And there's a bit of a Twitter, <laughs> bit of a Twitter storm about it. I remember it.
1: the Twitter storm. <laughs> it's so people so were saying, saying do I... I had to write the thing, it seemed like such a good idea then." <laughs>
0: And people were saying, "Should I still order 2.0? When's it coming?" And so on and so forth. So, I'm interested. Before we dig into a couple of your favourite strategies from there, um, how's the process of writing the book uh, been the same or different from 2.0? Because I imagine it's been more difficult to to get into classrooms, particularly over the last 12 months or so, or or has it has it not been yeah. affected?
1: It's definitely been affected. Um, it's been massively, massively difficult. Uh, one, because, yeah, uh, we don't have, don't have, you know, we don't have new video, haven't had video for, you know, mm. a year plus. Uh, and so, you know, like it's one of the pleasures of it is to have new examples and to show like that just this cycle of teachers learning constantly and to like renew your own ideas by seeing what teachers do. And so that's been very challenging. In some ways it's forced me to do what is a lot of the theme of the new book, which is more of like the why and the background and the science mm. and to sort of describe and to not do what's um what I'd love to do and what's easy in some ways which is like source another video that shows a teacher using it beautifully and instead go into like okay what does cognitive load theory tell us about what's happening here and why so it's been it's been a double-edged sword it's also been like it's a very it's a very hard time to um to write a book about like to me teach like a champion is a book about social justice and always has been it's about giving students every student the opportunity to be in the classroom that allows them to accomplish their dreams. At the same time, there are a lot of you know, like you uh, won't be surprised to hear that there are people who have uh, who claim the opposite about it. You know, there are like, mm. um, and so uh, you know, there are um, there is a a PhD who writes who writes papers in high academic discourse. Uh, who argues that it is an act of violence of students to you know, or that it is an act of oppression against students to cause them to use subject verb agreement in the classroom, and that this destroys their subjecthood? Um, you know, where he wouldn't dream of submitting a paper without impeccable, <laughs> uh, yes. impeccable subject verb agreement. Uh, so I don't really have. I don't have time to argue with people like that but I do think Can that I just like, ask Doug, yeah.
0: how does it make you feel that though cuz I again I, I only see yeah. this from afar I'm on Twitter and I yeah. know a few months ago at the time of recording there was a big thing bubbling up where people are having a, a fresh pop at it are, yeah. are you over all that now or does it still affect you
1: it's the price of getting the opportunity to talk to teachers about what they do and I love teachers and I'm so grateful for what they do and if that is the price I can pay it I don't, you know I'm not I I don't have much time for you for um uh Highbrow academics, <laughs> like that individual. Um, uh, but but part of but it also makes me realize that teachers deserve to understand why this idea, yes. what what you know, what is the idea behind format matters and why does it matter? And how do I think about this idea of standard English? And so, um, you know, I probably spent two or three weeks describing more carefully to teachers. Um why we as te- why, why correcting about why setting the standard of, of teaching standard English in the classroom mm. is a gift to students and why you can, how you can do that without that it does not imply a judgment on them mm. and that we are the only people in society we have a special responsibility in society to give to give students the ability to speak it when they want to yes because there is no. There is no news article. There is no scientific paper. There is no memo to the board. There is no discussion of the patient's symptoms made during rounds. That is not done in standard English. You may not be comfortable with that term, but it is the reality. And I have never met a parent who does not want their child to mm. learn to speak in the language of opportunity. And so, is there a way to do that? With <laughs> can, can you express to students that it is you know it is not a judgment? Absolutely. Is it a responsibility to teach students that? Absolutely. And does it like, is it somehow patronizing to think that like students' subjecthood, their their sense of self and subjecthood will be annihilated by learning to by learning to speak a certain way in the classroom? I find that really patronizing. We we would never assume that you and like if you came to the U.S. or I came to England. I would have to learn to speak slightly differently, and in public, I would speak differently mm-hmm. than I did at home. Suddenly, and you would do the same here, and you wouldn't say aluminum; yes. you would say aluminum, and you would, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and I would never use the phrase fanny pack, frankly, <laughs> which is what yeah. we call a bum bag. Uh, so you, I, so I would adjust my language, and I would start to talk more like you. And I am under no illusions that that would annihilate myself. Forward. why would we think that it would do that to our, that, our, that? Our students are so fragile and brittle that mm-hmm. somehow, mm-hmm. if like we, if yes. they learn to. speak if they started to speak a certain way in the classroom, because that is the way that that is what discourse sounded like in the professions that they sought when they become doctors and lawyers and bankers and tech entrepreneurs, why would we think that that would be destructive to them? I think they're perfectly capable of understanding um, the way that all of us speak differently in different settings. Mm. I find it patronizing. Got it. Yes. Anyway, to yeah, your to your answer, like I don't spend a lot of time. I, I focus. I look. I, th- I think. Mo- I think most teachers are ready to understand this. They deserve to have it explained to them, you know, carefully and fully, so that they understand that it's okay to do it and why it's okay to do it, um, and that it's an act of love and caring to do it in the end. And so that's what a lot of Teach Like a Champion three was yeah. is actually like solidifying these arguments and not presuming that people understood these things or, or or preparing them for the time when someone says, wow, you just, you just, you know, corrected that child's syntax. Isn't that, you know, uh, isn't that an an act of victimization? Uh, No. And here's why. Yes.
0: And would it be possible at all to share a few of the techniques, your favorite ones from 3.0, Doug?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I, I would say that there are fewer new techniques, but I'll just summarize some of the sort of big changes And like I said, I think one of the big changes was um, I tried to include much more grounding in the cognitive science. And so retrieval practice is a new technique and knowledge organizers are a new technique. And and some of the techniques have just been like rewritten within that framework. Hmm. But one of the other big changes is that the chapter on lesson planning I dropped and I replaced it with a chapter on lesson preparation because Mm -hmm. these are fundamentally different things. Lesson planning is when you design the lesson and like, what is the content? What are the activities that I allow students to do? What is the content? Uh, what is the subject of the lesson? Many teachers write their own lessons and do lesson planning, but many teachers don't. Like someone gives them a lesson plan that they teach. But every teacher needs to prepare to teach a lesson. And preparation is... You know, you have a third period and a fifth period. They're both year eight math classes, but you prepare them very differently. Right? One, your, your third period classes, nice. they're incredibly quiet and you know you're going to have to draw them out. And your fifth period class, um, you know, <laughs> you give them an inch and they take, you know, you have, you have to rein them in. And so you, <laughs> um, you prepare the questions that you ask and the ways that they will engage differently. Um, and so this chapter is about what it means once the lesson plan is written to prepare to teach. And it includes you know one of my one of my favorite techniques in the book is an idea is a is a technique called means of participation, which is just about intentionally signaling signaling the students how you want them to participate. So many times in a classroom, on a question that deserves wait time, I will ask my question, and someone will you know some some child will eagerly trying to please me shout out the answer right away. Right, I can't nice. if I haven't. So first of all, that's my responsibility for not explaining to students that we don't call out, raise your hands, I want you to raise your hand now, or it's okay to call out now, or I'll be cold calling, or it's call and response, or I want you to write first before you you speak, or I want you to turn and talk. That signaling to students how we want them to participate allows us to make Mm -hmm. intentional instructional decisions, but that we so often we forget. We overlook this part of the process, which is signaling and what is the means by which I want you to participate in the class. So this is both, I think, a critical part of preparation. But then when you get into the classroom, a critical part of the teaching is to say, um, uh, here's a question I'm gonna ask you. Uh I'll take hands on this one. Or uh take 30 seconds to think, and then I can't wait to see your hands, right? Which basically says, I want you to wait, and then I want and and uh, and yes. then I want you to raise your hands and, and please don't call out. So that's um, one this is the sort of larger chapter. On, and like one of the elements of lesson preparation is also just what I call exemplar planning, which is for critical questions that you want to ask during the course of your lesson, writing out what the ideal answer that you want is, because yes. this frees your working memory to listen to what students are actually saying and to compare what they're saying to concrete example of what excellence looks like, you're unlikely to see the gaps in student answers. If you haven't thought through in advance, what, you know, what does quality look like here? And if you're trying to evaluate, is an answer complete and full? And is, is this is what I'm looking for while you're also trying to listen to it and think of your next question, who you're gonna call on your own work. I mean, working memory is important for students to talk about, but it's also critically important for teachers to think about And So it's a, it's a tool for managing the load on your own working memory during class. So that's, I think, one chapter that people will find um, will will find pretty interesting. Um, and then, like I said, uh, uh, you know, they're just like I, I've spent a lot of time reworking some of the techniques that people know best, like uh, like Format Matters and Habits of Attention, which is the uh, the rename on 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 Slant that um, that I mentioned before. And there's a lot of um, you know social social science research in there as well.
0: It sounds absolutely fascinating, though. When do you reckon it'll be out?
1: It's going to be out in July, uh, assuming I make my deadlines, which is uh, so far so good. <laughs> it can't last. Nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, one other, one other change that I would, uh, maybe I'll just yeah. tell you about quickly is sure. change the way I use the videos. I think one, of the, um, one thing that sometimes happens is you know, to show a teacher, to show a technique that a teacher uses, you often have to like give a very focused video right? To show the way that a teacher asks students to um, speak loudly enough that his or her peers can see them. Like it kind of requires like a montage of a teacher doing that three or four times. Yes. And that both represents, it shows you what they do, but it also distorts what they do because you don't see everything that happens in between and the sort of loving and positive mm-hmm. interactions. And so I think it's very easy to be like, well, that's, you know, that's all that teacher, that, that teacher doesn't build relationships. They think they can just, yes. you know. and so I've included in the book 10 what I call keystone videos, which are their longer videos of like 10 minutes at a time in a teacher's classroom to show you the larger arc of like, this is what their instruction looks like cohesively together, in all the pieces in one. And then I often pull out excerpts from those lessons today. And here's what it's looked like. Here's what it looks like when she's reinforcing the idea of speaking loudly enough, you know, format, format matters to her students so that you can see both the, the hyper focus, but also the, the bigger picture, which I think will Help forestall misinterpretations of what the larger classroom looks like. That sounds fascinating, though.
0: Fascinating. Well, I can't wait for it. And I know you've got to shoot. So just to wrap things up, though, I wonder if we could just rattle through your big three, if that's all right. You, manage, you mentioned The Righteous Mind, and what other yeah. two books would you recommend?
1: Uh, boy, I love, I've been, I've just loved reading and go back over and over again to Peps McRae's book, Motivated Teaching. Oh, it's, it's a classic, isn't it? It's slim, elegant, how, how does, how does he get so much in such a small, slim It's annoying, like,
0: it's annoying, Doug. Yeah, as far as writers, I'm, I'm jealous of him. It's ridiculous.
1: That book is gold and you can read it in the day. Uh, so Motivated Teaching, it's the study of the science of motivation. Profound influence on me. I think it's brilliant. Um like I said, uh, The Righteous Mind by John Haight is so powerful in thinking about both both teaching and opinions in the classroom, but just society in general. And then maybe the third book that I recommend, I mean, there's so many books I'd recommend, but um, Tom Bennett's Running the Room, in addition to just being practical about how to build positive, productive cultures, which we're going to have to do so much when we come back to the classroom. There's just like his writing is like hilarious and beautiful yes. and insightful yes. and it just reinforces you on this very visceral level for you that like it is okay to love children and set limits and then in fact that like setting limits is how we love kids and uh i think it just like uh it lifts the veil <laughs> on on what we're doing with the young people that we love in the classroom i just uh it's it's so it's you know beautiful and hilarious and and insightful all at the same time so uh that's yet another uh, tremendous read.
0: Fantastic, superb dog. Well, it's been three years since you're on it last. Maybe in the next three years, you'll either be back on talking, teach like a champion 4.0 or maybe announcing your tenureship as manager of Preston North End. Who knows which way it's. going I
1: mean, go. I'm waiting any day now. I'm waiting. I'm <laughs> checking my email as soon as I as soon as we hang up.
0: Coming, it's coming. But Doug, it's been an absolute pleasure. I absolutely love talking to you. I always learn so much and I know the listeners will too. So Doug Lamov, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: As uh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it, and I hope to talk to you soon sooner than sooner than three years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> crossed. So there you have it. There was my interview with Doug Lamov. As I said, the first time Dub was on the show back in twenty seventeen, it was a real special episode for me. Um, I was swapping a couple of messages with Chris Bolton uh, recently, and he made the point that he reckoned twenty seventeen was kind of the golden age of the podcast, and I, th- I think I think he's absolutely right there. It was it was the time when my whole kind of mid career crisis was in 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 kind of its absolute peak. And it was when I was speaking to Dylan William, the Bjorks, Doug Lamov, Daisy Christadulu, Danny Quinn, Chris Bolton, Greg Ashman, all these people who were just blowing my mind with everything that they said. And that was when I was writing How Wish I Taught Maths and, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's really interesting. And um, I still absolutely love doing the podcast and I, and I hope people are still getting a lot out of it. But I do sometimes feel like a, a band who kind of peaked in the early days. and I'm trying to recapture that same glory and, and sometimes I get close and, and, and sometimes I don't. But I think hopefully you'll agree with me that this is one of those times where we're kind of back to our best here. Because Doug is just... He's just a perfect guest because he's he's obviously incredibly knowledgeable and he's an absolutely lovely bloke as well, making time to, to chat to the likes of me. But also, his focus is on the practical. And that's why I love his books, particularly Teach Like a Champion, because it's, it's all practical, real-life strategies that not only have been born out in the classroom but have been tested, tried, tested, and refined there. And you can watch the videos um, on his website to, to see it in action as well. So it's just, just fantastic to speak to Doug. Anyway, um, three takeaways I'm going to pick up on here. The first is for me, the, kind of the big one from, from the conversation, and that was relationships. And such a simple point Doug made, but that, that's, they're often the most powerful ones because I, I certainly haven't considered it or certainly not to the um, the level I should have done. And that is that the focus is, or is often put on the relationship between teacher and pupil, because that's the one you can control, or at least you can can kind of control 50% of the people in that partnership. But in fact, the more profound one is on pupil to pupil, the classroom culture that's developed in terms of how students respond to each other, how they respect each other, how they interact. Now, what's really interesting about this, I've been thinking about this since I spoke to Doug, is for me, it was always enough that when another student was talking, the rest of the class were just quiet. That, that's all I was bothered about, that nobody was talking over. And that for me was enough. They were quiet and respectful. But having listened to Doug, I realised I need to do so much more than that. I want my students attentively listening. I want them nodding. I want them actively involved. I want them, as Doug said, referring back to answers. So Mirren said, that when, when, the next, when Jack answers, he says... Mirren said this, and I'm going to build upon it. Now this is going to take time to develop, but what a powerful thing that is. What a powerful classroom culture. When you've not only got students who know kind of the rule is I'm quiet when somebody else speaks, but the rule, or more importantly, the norm is that when somebody else speaks, I am actively, attentively involved in that. So how do we do it? Let's move to the practical. Well as Doug says, first we've got to introduce to students why we're doing it. Why is this important? And as I mentioned, Whenever I'm justifying strategies and ideas my language is my language shifts depending on the age of the students that, that I'm speaking to So we've, we've got to get the, sell, sell the dream to the kids of why this is a, a a really important nice thing to do. so we introduce it we justify it we model it and then we practice it and this goes back to one of the the first conversations I ever had on the podcast God knows how many years ago we're talking now but when Bruno Reddy was on the show and he talked loads about routines, How you introduce routines, but then you rehearse the routines. And this comes back to something I've been thinking about when I've been doing lots of reading on retrieval. and thinking about low stakes quizzes and things like that. I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, so forgive me. But a mistake I've been making for many years is that when I do retrieval practice and retrieval opportunities, it's all factual based stuff like, can you remember how to add some fractions? Can you remember how to expand some brackets? I never include in those retrieval opportunities, whether they're starters, low stakes quizzes or whatever, I never include routines. I never include the things about behavior that I want students to remember. So what's wrong within a low stakes quiz, including, you know, question two is how do you multiply out these algebraic fractions? Question three is why do we have to attentively listen to students in class? That kind of thing, because if I want students to remember it, then I've got a schedule in retrieval opportunity, just like if I want them to remember anything. So it's really got me thinking this about relationships, relationships between students and student, how to build them and, and why they're so important. And, and as we spoke about, this is a golden opportunity. Students coming back to the classroom, this is one of the major things they've missed out on, this this, this connection with their classmates, their connection with us. So it's a chance to reset. It's a chance to reestablish a norm, introduce a new norm. And I think this, yeah, sounds to me just such a smart idea. So that was the first one, relationships. The second was technology. um again, i've I've discussed this with with Joe Morgan, so I'll just say it briefly. Um I think it's just fascinated me how teachers have embraced technology and been forced to really, um for this remote learning. And as I said, um in my early interviews with um with with teachers, when when we first went to remote teaching, People were hating it. and It was just a case of kind of asynchronous lessons just getting by. But as teachers have had to adapt, their use of technology has kind of <laughs> just gone through the roof. And it'd be great to see some of that positive stuff make its way back into the classroom. So as I said, my my kind of instinct is that some form of low-stakes quiz or exit ticket or, you know, mini, whatever you want to call it, um, I some forms of assessment opportunity... I think could be something that transfers nicely across and and that's my instinct imagine just like a mini mini quiz at the end of each lesson that students just do at home or on their phone on the way home or something like that because they're all set up on whether it's google infrastructure or microsoft infrastructure they'll all be happy using forms or i'm a big fan of using the desmos activity builder whatever you've been using with them remotely if we can take an element of that and just regularly start setting these low stakes quizzes for our students It's going to save us a load of time in terms of the marking. It's going to harness the technology for what it's really, really good at. And then it's going to allow us to have more time to do what we're really good at. And that's kind of teaching our students to to understand things better. Final thing is I really like this idea from Doug of the shift away from lesson planning to lesson preparation. You know what? It reminds me a little bit of something John Mason spoke about when he was on the podcast with, with Ann Watson a few years ago. And it was something I'd heard John speak about at at a workshop, and I wanted to bring it up on the podcast. And that is when he thinks about lesson planning, he visualizes it. So instead of just kind of writing in a lesson plan, um, I'm going to do a worked example, or my students are going to be working through this activity, problem-solving activity, or whatever. John speaks about how he closes his eyes and thinks about what that will look like. What will he be doing? What will his students be doing? Visualizing it. Maybe even rehearse it out loud, the things that are going to be said. And that strikes, that that seems to me to, to have parallels with what Doug's talking about, lesson preparation. It's one step above and beyond or deeper than the planning. Now, it also reminds me of um, when Doug was saying, kind of reduce the cognitive load imposed on the teacher by having this example of excellence ready. You don't want to be thinking of this example of excellence kind of on the fly when you're dealing with a million other things that are going on in the classroom. Now, I think that's, I can only speak as a maths teacher. But I think that that feels to me particularly important with maths. I've been caught out a lot of the time with this, where there's been quite a complex maths problem. Perhaps it's A-level, further maths, or even GCSE sometimes, particularly if it's shape and space that I'm absolutely terrible at. And all my attention goes on trying to figure out how to do the question. And all of a sudden, my actual questioning goes down the toilet. My behavior management goes down the toilet. Because my working memory, my attention is so focused on the mathematics. So that's one of the reasons I'm a big fan of silent teacher. Because during silent teacher my attention can be just on answering the problem, working through the problem, pausing at the right time, and so on. And then when I do narration, which is the stage after Silent Teacher in my worked example process, my focus then is purely on asking questions because the problem has already been been written out, as I did in Silent Teacher. But now I'm starting to think, and Michael Pershing's model for doing worked examples is even better, where he has his examples already written up. So there's no cognitive load there. All Michael's focus can be away from the mathematics and more towards asking questions, checking behavior and picking up on cues from kids and so on. And that's a perfect way to end this because Michael, if all goes to plan, will be the next guest on this show. And we're going to go deep into his work to example process and see how it differs to mine and why those differences happen. So um, that brings us to an end. As I say, I absolutely loved uh, loved this interview with Doug. Um, I hope you enjoyed it too. Um, all that remains for me to do is to thank Doug for giving up his time. Uh, To thank uh, podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show. To thank you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in in your thousands. That's why I do these shows. And just to say, to to wrap things up, um, just good luck. (laughs) Good luck in the return to the classroom. I know having spoken to to colleagues, friends, and, and seen on Twitter... There's a real mixture of emotions here. There's a lot of excitement. That's the kind of main thing that's coming through. Um, Teachers desperate to go back to the classroom, just like kids are desperate to go back to the classroom. But that's mixed in with anxiety. Um, That's mixed in with with fear, nervousness, and so on and so forth, trepidation. Um, So we're all kind of in this together. There's support out there, whether it's uh, your colleagues in your department, whether it's your senior leadership, or whether it's Twitter. I'm always like... Twitter has lots of negatives to it. There's there's lots of kind of biting behavior on there and stuff. But I'll tell you what, Twitter is never at its best more than when a teacher says, I've had a bad day. Because then all the comments come in, just give me drop me a line, blah, blah, blah. I've had a bad day too and so on. So if you're struggling, don't struggle alone. That's what we've got social media for. And believe me, you will not be the only one struggling. So you take care of yourselves. Look after yourself, look after your kids, enjoy being back and I'll be back with a fresh episode soon. Take care, bye for now.